Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 3? That is the last time you'll hear me announce John chapter 3. We'll finish it this week and we'll be done. Not John. We'll be in that for years, but we're in John chapter 3. Uh, this morning. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather now, and we have full understanding that our listening to what the Spirit of God is saying through the written Word is of utmost importance. And we want you to know that you are worth giving our attention to. And it's worth it for us to sit through this message and find out how we align or should align ourselves with you, how to apply it, how to learn and understand. So as part of our worship, we pray you'd receive attentive hearts, minds, and bodies. And we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us. And we're so thankful, Lord, for what you've already done in our lives. And we say a special prayer, Lord, for those of our neighbors down south, down in Chile, who have experienced a terrible earthquake, and many of loved ones have been killed, and it seems like we're hearing more and more about earthquakes in these days. Lord, help us as believers to know how to get involved and still stay involved with what has happened in Haiti, and thank you for the opportunities, Lord, to share the resources you've given. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to walk inside my mother-in-law's home, I won't tell you where she lives because you'll understand why in a moment. If you were to walk inside, um, right in her living room is an interesting picture. It's part of the family. It's a family heirloom. It was passed down. But it is an original charcoal drawing of Madonna and Son by Pablo Picasso. An original Picasso. And it is hanging on the wall by a single nail. All of that history, all of that value by a single nail. So valuable, but so vulnerable. Likewise, I had a friend who was at the New York Metropolitan Museum a few years back, and he was taken to the level below the street level to um, a showing of artistry uh, from Max Beckman, who was a German expressionist. And uh, there was one particular picture that was very, very costly. The curator threw out the price of $28 million because it was the picture that Adolf Hitler had taken and hung in his own home. My friend looked closer, and once again, this particular painting, unlike the rest of the museum pieces that are on wires or attached some other way, was hanging on the wall by a single nail. Now, what those uh, situations have done, we Christians likewise do because we hang everything, all of our present beliefs, all of our future hopes on one single nail, the person of Jesus Christ. We put all our eggs in that basket. We say our family, our fortune, our future, all of that is going to be tied and hung on the, the one 
one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's probably no better paragraph that illustrates that than the one we're about to read. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 31. What John does is show us why Jesus is so unique, why he is so singular, why he is the bottom line, the irreducible minimum, the ultimate reality, the nail by which everything hangs on. There's four reasons he gives for that. Number one is his origin. He came from heaven. Number two is his proclamation. What he proclaimed to our world or disclosed or preached or declared to our world. Number three is his dominion. He dominates the whole universe. And number four, his reception. He determines our destiny. Verse 31 begins... He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, there, there is some disagreement about these verses. There, there's those who think John the Baptist is speaking, that he has been speaking previously in the previous paragraph. And in verse 30, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And then John the Baptist keeps talking till verse 36. There are others who believe that this is not John the Baptist speaking, but this is John the Apostle, the author of the book, who is writing his own editorial comments. And that's what I believe. And here's the problem we have, and here's why there's an argument. In the original, there's no punctuation marks. So translators have made their own call as to which is which. Some translations, like mine, put quotation marks around it as if to say, I believe John the Baptist spoke these words. But because of the style and the grammar that does not sound like John the Baptist, but reads just like John's other writings, like 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and some of the own comments that he writes in the Gospel of John, those and that style is exactly like this style. So what I think is this. Verse 30 ends what John the Baptist has to say in the Gospel of John. That's his final word. He must increase, I must decrease. Now John, the apostle, the author writes his own editorial comments as to why John and everyone else must decrease and Christ must increase. Here is why, John says, Jesus is so unique. Here is why so many in these three chapters have believed in him. Here is why Jesus Christ is the ultimate nail by which we hang everything on. And furthermore, in a practical note, verse 16 Here's why you should believe in him. It's just very practical. He is this, he is that, he is this, he is that. Therefore, believe in him. He's very, very practical. 
I was reading how that when NASA was first sending American astronauts into space, they quickly discovered that uh, the ballpoint pen does not work at zero gravity. And so America spent the next 10 years and millions of dollars to make a pen that will work at zero gravity, upside down, uh, underwater, at extreme temperatures up to 300 degrees Celsius, on any surface, including glass, 10 years and millions and millions of dollars. You know what the Russians did? They used a pencil. <laughs> now, now that's practical. Why spend all of the money and effort and time making a pen when you can just use a pencil? That makes sense. Well, that's sort of what John is concluding chapter 3 with. No use putting all of your energy and effort and hanging your life and trusting anything else than this one nail, and that is Christ. And he gives us the reasons for that. Number one, he descended from heaven. That's his origin. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So unlike John the Baptist, and unlike all of the other human prophets who have come before, Jesus' hometown was heaven. Not Bethlehem, heaven. Jesus Christ was the only person who lived before he was born. If you were to talk to somebody and say, uh, hey, tell me a little bit about you. Where are you from? They might say, well, I'm, I'm from Florida or Wisconsin or North Dakota or Colorado. Well, so how did you get to New Mexico? Tell me a little bit about your family history. Well, my mom met my dad. They got married in Colorado. They moved to Santa Fe. And then a story like that. You might have a story like that. Now, imagine that conversation with Jesus. So where are you from? Nazareth, before that, Bethlehem. But before that, I lived in heaven. And I was there for eons and eons and heard angels every day and every night. And by the way, I, along with my Father and the Holy Spirit, we created everything. He who is from above is above all. There's something you've noticed about the Gospel of John so far. When John writes his Gospel, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't like wait and give all the good stuff at the end. It's like, I'll just kind of, here's a few stories about Jesus, and then at the end I'll tell you who he really is. He comes right out of the chute and basically says, okay, just so you know, Jesus Christ is God in a human body. Right? That's how he begins. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you go down a few verses, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Verse 31 is essentially saying the same thing. He who is from above is above all. And then at the end of that same verse, he who comes from heaven is above all. He wants you to know his origin is not an earthly origin, it's a heavenly origin. That's where he came from. That's where he came from. Now, I discovered something interesting in my study. Not only does John emphasize this, but Jesus himself very often wants to underscore that his origin is from heaven. 
He says it a lot. So many places we can't chase them all down this morning. But I want to give you a sampling. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, it's a long chapter. Jesus is speaking in most of it. But just follow a few of these. Verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 50. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven. So why is Jesus Christ the nail by which you can hang everything and everyone on? Because unlike anyone else, his origin is heavenly. This is the nail that won't break. It's eternal. Its origin is not earthly, but heavenly. It's an important truth. So important that our church fathers, whenever they would get together and and write creeds about what's important to believe in, they brought this out. Most famous, perhaps, is the Nicene Creed, written in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. Here's a portion. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being or one substance with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven." Question, why did he come down from heaven? Did he come down from heaven to give us a cool winter holiday and we can get a few days off of work every year? No. Did he come down from heaven to give us a nice, wonderful example and some teachings so that people, as they read, can better their own lives? No. The angel told Mary exactly why he came. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. That's why he came. That's why John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb is a sacrificial animal to atone for sins. Mary had a little lamb, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Have you ever thought that Jesus Christ was the only person who was ever born in this world with the distinct purpose to die? Every parent that holds a baby doesn't think that way. Every parent thinks, my child is going to live, and, and who will he marry, or, or where will she go to school, or, or what will this child become? All of those plans, God's plan for his son, was the death of a cross because it would save his people from their sins. There's a little poem that's simple, short, but sums it up. 
A baby's hands in Bethlehem were small and softly curled, but held within their dimpled grasp the hopes of all the world. All the world could hang upon that one nail because of his origin from heaven. Second reason is because of his proclamation. He declared truth to our world. Now watch this. Verse uh, 32. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies or speaks. And no one has received his testimony He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. So just like Jesus was from heaven, so too his testimony was from heaven. That's why his testimony, his words, are superior to everyone else's words. And if you're wondering, that's the whole concept behind red-letter Bibles. These are the words of Christ. His words are more important than anybody's words. Even more than Moses, even more than Jeremiah, more than Isaiah, more than Abraham. It's not that they weren't inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, but what they wrote, what they said was secondhand testimony. What Jesus speaks is firsthand. He was there. He was in heaven and from heaven had the full knowledge and full grasp of everything. And so when he testifies, he was there. He'd seen it and heard it. And you get that sense when you read the New Testament, right? Classic case. Uh, Jesus is having a conversation. Well, actually, an argument. They started it. The Pharisees come to him, and this is what they said. Moses commanded us to give a certificate of divorce to our wives if we wanted to bail out. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce under certain circumstances. Then he said this, but from the beginning, it was not so. And in the beginning, he points out that God said, for this man, a reason a man will leave his father and mother, join his wife and become one flesh. So here's Jesus appealing to them, but he goes, now from the beginning, that's not how it was. And you know how he knows that? He was at the beginning. He was there. And later on, when he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage till Noah went into the ark. He is speaking from firsthand knowledge. He was there. When he speaks of Abraham, he says as much. They bring up Abraham and he says, well, I want you to know something. Before Abraham was, I am. And then he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. First-hand testimony. First-hand knowledge. When he speaks of the Old Testament or creation or heaven, it's not because he read it in a book. He was there. And so he is from above, and his testimony is also from above, and therefore superior. And what he proclaims, it's based on what he has seen and what he has heard. Not theoretical, not secondhand, but firsthand experiential. So here's an obvious question. If God is speaking to the world through his Son, how come nobody's listening? That must be frustrating. I... Heard the story of the man who went to his doctor to get his hearing checked. He was having problems with it. Doctor examined him, pulled out his hearing aid. Immediately his hearing got better. He'd been wearing it in the wrong ear for 20 years. (laughs) Frustrating. Liberating, I suppose. 
But you know what it's like when you talk to somebody and they're looking at you and they're nodding with you, but they're not even close to that conversation. They're a million miles away and they're going, ah, ah, uh-huh. And it's like, whatever. It's frustrating, isn't it? So imagine how God must feel because of situations like verse 32, and no one receives his testimony. No one receives his testimony. Now that is, that's a hyperbole. It's a literary hyperbole. The general rule is most of the people of the world do not listen to Christ's testimony. It doesn't mean that nobody does because verse 33 says they do. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Oh, I love that little phrase. God is true. You can, you can believe the testimony of Jesus and anybody who receives that testifies God is true. Say it. God is true. But every now and then somebody will come along and say, well, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, I, I, I can't turn from that sin. Uh, I, I can't. I've tried. It didn't work for me. I can't do it. I'm codependent. I, I can't rejoice evermore. I can't be happy. Don't you know, I've been scarred as a child. I, I can't be holy. I know what the Bible says. That didn't work for me. I can't. I'm married to a creepy husband and I can't do really anything in spiritual sense. I can't, I can't, I can't. Here it says God is true. In Romans 3, verse 4, it's even more emphatic. Let God be true and every man a liar. Well, God says rejoice evermore. God says be holy for I am holy. God says let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. God says be thankful for everything. So when a person says I can't, I can't. I can't. I say, you're a liar. Let God be true. Because here's the deal. God doesn't give us a commandment without the power to do the commandment. His commandments are his enablements. If he says, rejoice evermore, it's because he knows he'll give you the power to rejoice evermore. It can be done. God is true. God is true. So why is that? Well, because... He's seen everything. He's heard everything. He knows everything. It's not like, well, now it's the 21st century, and so there's God going, oh, I I didn't really know about codependency or addictive behavior. So you're right. You're right. You don't have to be holy or rejoice evermore. It's an exception. He knows all. And if he gives a command, you and I can do it. And you'll find the power to do it by his command. Here's the third reason Jesus is so unique, so the irreducible minimum, so the nail by which everything hangs on is that he dominates the universe. Here's his dominion. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. That's evidential. For God does not give the spirit by measure. Now, there's better translations of that. It's referring to Christ and It's saying when it comes to Christ, God the Father doesn't give to him the Holy Spirit in a limited, measured form. It's unlimited. It's unmeasured. In verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. 
Now, if you think back to the Old Testament prophets or even John the Baptist, they were led by the Holy Spirit. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist had the unique privilege, it says, of being filled with the Holy Spirit since when? Since his mother's womb, since before he was born. But the Holy Spirit's ability to empower was limited by man's own sinful, fallen human nature. Not so with Jesus, because he had no sinful, fallen human nature. He was God in human flesh. So when it comes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit operated in unlimited, unmitigated, full power. He doesn't give the Spirit by measure. That's why John the Baptist said, I saw the Holy Spirit descending on him and remaining on him. Jesus stood in the synagogue at Nazareth, quoting Isaiah 61, which predicted the Holy Spirit's power on the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. That is full, unrestrained, unrestricted, unlimited power. Now, I read something a couple years ago, a few years ago. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it because it'll be a mental diversion. The whole time you go, I can't believe he said that. And this is what the author said. When Jesus was on earth and performed miracles, signs and wonders, he did so as simply a man filled with the Holy Spirit. So, the author concluded, you and I likewise can do the same signs and wonders as men or women filled with the Holy Spirit. That is pure baloney. Jesus didn't do signs and wonders as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, but as the perfect God-man, uniquely operating in full power because of his own nature. Very, very different. Look at verse 31. There's something that is mentioned, first of all. We sort of ran over it. It says, He who comes from above is above all. It's a very simple statement. It means what it says. He's, he's, he dominates the entire universe. It's said twice. He who is from the earth is earthly in comparison, speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, verse 35 augments that. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. What things? All things. How much is all? All things. But let's get a little more specific. All things from creation to consummation. From the creation of the universe to the consummation of the universe. All those things are in the jurisdiction of the Son. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made by Him, Christ, and without Him nothing was made that was made. That's the creation. In John chapter 5, Jesus will say, For the Father has put all judgment into the hands of the Son. That's the consummation. Everything from creation of the world to the consummation of the world is under the authority of Jesus Christ. So, this is what it means. Put it all together quickly. Jesus Christ created the universe. God the Father, through the agency of Christ, created the world. He created all things. All things were made by Him. So He took the unformed mass, the chaos, and turned it into an ordered system, the cosmos. Jesus did that, number one. Number two, not only did He create it, He maintains it. He sustains it. 
Hebrews 1 verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1:17, in him all things consist or are held tightly together. He created, he sustains, and number three, he'll end it. He'll end it all. He'll fold it all up. How will he do it? I think he's just going to do this. He's going to let go. He's going to let go. We know that um, all matter is made up of rapidly moving particles that are uh, held together. They're opposite charges many times, but they're held together. The big question people have asked for years is, how does it all hold together? There's been a lot of attempts to explain that. Listen to Dr. Lee Chestnut in his book, The Atom Speaks. Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he has now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight without a charge. Now, if you're not scientific, you listen to this and go, who cares? So what? Well, hang on. Because everything we know, we operate according to this knowledge. We operate according to Columns' law of electrostatic force and magnetism that says um, like charges repel each other. So, Lee Chesna continues, What went wrong? What holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? Well, if you're a biblicist, you have an answer. Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 1.17. He holds it all together. He's the atomic glue, if you want to use that term. So he created it. He maintains it. And one day he's going to go, done. He who upholds all, he who comes from above, he who testifies perfect because of his superior origin, will one day let go. Because it says all things are in his hands. There's a fourth reason. This is the best part, that he is the nail upon which everything hangs, and that is he will ultimately determine your destiny and mine. Now we look at his reception. Verse 36 is both an invitation and a warning. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Did you notice here, and do you notice a lot, I bet you do in the Bible, how the Bible so often reduces everything to its irreducible minimum, how it puts all of humanity into two camps. Those who believe, it's one camp, and the other camp is those who do not believe. Those who have life, and those who do not have life. The Bible constantly does that. Moreover, notice that the reward for believing and the punishment for not believing isn't some far future thing. It's some present reality. It's present tense. Notice this. He who believes in the Son has. That's present tense. It's not that one day you've got it now if you believe in Him. It begins now. Now, it'll last forever. It includes heaven and the millennial kingdom and rewards and everything else, but it begins right now. And then notice... It goes on to say, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. That's future, but watch this. But the wrath of God abides, that's present tense, on him. 
So the idea is that not one day God will condemn those who have not trusted in Christ. They're already there. They are living in a state of perpetual condemnation. And the only hope to be rescued from that is Jesus Christ coming from heaven to the earth and men and women believing in him. That's why the angel said, you'll call his name Jesus because he's going to save people from their sin. They're in a state of condemnation. The only hope for being rescued is to believe. And most won't believe, but some will believe. That's what verse 32 and 33 are about. No one receives his testimony. That's generally true. But it is also true, this blessed exception, he who has received his testimony is certified that God is true. See, to understand spiritual life, we have to understand spiritual death. It's not like people are born into the world and they're all wonderful, good people and you fan the flame of goodness and do good things and they get better and read books on how to be better and self-realization help, all that. No. The Bible says we were born into this world in what condition? Dead. Ephesians says you were dead in trespasses and sins. I got news for you. Dead people don't do a whole lot. You could yell at a dead person and it won't get up. I can't believe you left me. No response. You can poke it, you can prod it, you can hit it, nothing. Unless there's a resurrection of life, there is no response. God, by His grace, enables men and women to believe in Him. And when they do that, and they receive Him, then they are infused with life. You see, the world is populated with a bunch of dead people. Already under the sentence of the wrath of God. And the only rescue is what Jesus Christ is all about. That's why he's the nail that everything hangs on. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He said, he who has the son has life. So do you believe? Will you believe? Will you hang everything present belief? and future hope on Christ and Him alone. That's really the issue, isn't it? And I'll tell you why you should do that. You should do that because that's exactly what God the Father has done. He hung all of our sin on Christ, and then He hung His Son on a cross. And in so doing, in so putting His Son on those nails of the cross, God was saying, I am hanging the hopes of all of humanity on Him alone. On Him alone. On him alone. The hopes of all people. I want to close with a little story. I found it this week. And again, I'm sorry, I don't know who wrote it, but I like it. It begins by saying, there was once a little boy who had a bad temper. You know anybody like that? If you don't, I'll introduce you to a few of them. His father gave him a bag of nails and told him that every time he lost his temper, he must hammer a nail into the back of the fence. The first day, the boy had driven 37 nails into the fence. Over the next few weeks, as he learned to control his anger, the number of nails hammered daily gradually dwindled down. He discovered it was easier to hold his temper than to drive those nails into the fence. Finally, the day came when the boy didn't lose his temper at all. He told his father about it. And the father suggested that now the boy pull out one nail for each day that he was able to hold his temper. The days passed 
And the young boy was finally able to tell his father that all the nails were gone. The father took his son by the hand and led him to the fence. He said, you have done well, my son. But look at the holes in the fence. The fence will never be the same. When you say things in anger, you leave a scar just like these. You can put a knife in a man and draw it out, and it won't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry, the wound is still there. The little boy then understood how powerful his words were. He looked up at his father, and he said, I hope you can forgive me, Father, for all the holes I put in you. And his father said, Of course I can. Of course I can. You know who put those nails in Jesus' hands and feet? I did. I did. We did. He died for our sins. He died in our place. And do you know why? When you say, I hope you can forgive me, God. Do you know why God can say, of course I can. Of course I can. It's because of that, what happened on the cross. It's because Jesus hung on those nails on the cross. The perfect God man from above, who was perfect, no sinful nature. And he paid the price. So that all of our sin was dealt with. God can be just. But God can say, I forgive you. Of course I can. Of course I will. So God hung everything on him. And John says, you know what? You ought to do the same. If you do, if you believe in Him, if you hang all of your weight on Him, you'll have everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord, just that one little paragraph is a treasure trove of some of the greatest and yet most fundamental biblical truths It is the bottom line. It is the irreducible minimum. It is the nail that will never break. Jesus Christ, superior, unique, because he came from heaven. He spoke firsthand what he saw and heard. He dominates what he created. And he determines our destiny. Thankfully, Lord... Your spirit moves in the hearts of men and women. And you bring an element of conviction. And you enable belief to occur. And that is our decision. We have to cooperate. We must decide. We can walk away from Jesus. We can hang our life, our future, our hopes on other things. But it's, it's wise, it's practical to use the pencil, so to speak. The solution that has already been given never has to be repeated, the cross. I pray, Lord, for those here who have never personally trusted in Christ. Oh, they're wonderful people, some of them with a great religious upbringing, members of churches, good moral values. On and on we could run that list. But Jesus came to take care of the sin problem. 
And when we admit that we're part of that sin problem, that we're sinners, then we enter into the solution. So I pray for those, Lord, as good as they might be from a human perspective, the wrath of God is still abiding on them. But by their belief, by their cooperation with your call, they could enter into life eternal. I pray they would do that this morning. I pray for those also, Lord, who have walked away from Jesus. They, they're not in fellowship with Him. They have run away, run the other direction. Like the prodigal son, maybe they've come to their senses and they're wondering, I wonder if, if my father would accept me. I wonder if I could be forgiven. All the while from heaven we hear the voice, of course I will forgive you if you come. If any of that describes you, and you know now is the time for you to release your life into the one who made it and will ultimately judge it. If you're willing to commit your life to Jesus Christ this morning or come back to Christ after straying from Him, as we're praying, as our heads are bowed, I want you to raise your hand up in the air so that I can see your hand. And as I do, I'm going to pray for you. We're all going to pray for you, but I just want to acknowledge you. God bless you, ma'am, up in the front and you toward the back, in the middle, at the aisle, right in the middle. Anybody else? Toward the back, a couple of you, right up front. Anybody else? Raise it up. Say, include me in this. Yep, thank you for waving. God bless you. Eyes are bad. Now I can see two, three. If you're in the overflow, if you're outside, if you're in the hub, raise your hand up. A pastor will be there to direct you. Lord, our prayer is for these. I pray that today would mark a threshold moment where these who are coming to Christ would after today know that their sins are buried, gone, that of course you were willing to forgive them. And they would hang not only today, but every day hereafter on that unbreakable, unshakable nail of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give them your peace, your comfort. Give them stability and surround them with other people who will help keep them on the road following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. As we uh, sing this last song, I'm going to ask those of you who raised your hands to put feet on your hands, not literally, but to walk the nearest aisle and come stand right up here in the front where publicly you're going to give your life to Christ. You're going, Skip, I like it when you close the eyes and bow the head and raise a hand. Yeah, but Jesus called people publicly. So come make it public. Stand right up here and give your life to Christ. Make this your day. Don't wait any longer. Don't wait for another opportunity. Come right now and pray this prayer. I remember the day that I decided to hang my life on the very one God hung everything on. I remember how life changed for me. I was a church-going boy. I wasn't a good one, but I was one. But it was just so different. I realized this ain't religion. Man, this is so... This is life. This is real. It's reality. It's radical reality. In fact... um, People talk about all the stars aligning. I talk about life aligning when you come into alignment with your Creator, the one who made you. He made you to walk with you and fellowship with you. When you come into alignment with that, it's like, it's good. It's good. It's the way it ought to be. 
Anybody else want to take God's offer and come forward with these folks and pray a prayer to receive Christ? Anybody else? If so, just get up out of where you're standing and come quickly and come join them. Some of you have been prayed for for a long time. Maybe God will answer those prayers today. Just come. Believe. Trust. Well, those of you who have come forward, I want you to know something. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, is past, as far as God's concerned. That's why it's called the gospel. It means good news. The good news is, the great news is, Jesus took all of your sin and my sin, took care of it, paid for it, and will say to you, you're my child, you're going to heaven because of what I've done for you. I bought the ticket with my own blood. Now I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. And I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud after me from your heart to the Lord. This is you giving your life away to Him. Giving your life away to Him. You're not making God a part of your life. You're giving your life away to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross and that He rose from the grave and that He's alive today. I turn from my sin. I turn to You as Savior and as Lord. I hang all of my life upon You. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit and help me to live for You. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you, and God bless.